0: Plastic. It is the foundational substance of our modern world. Cheap, malleable, and durable, it has enabled our species to make exponential strides in our ability to transport food, build affordable and lightweight technology, and provide what some would define as a higher standard of living. But the ease and frivolity with which we have mass-produced plastic on this planet has come with a grave consequence. For every short-term gain that we are afforded with using plastic, we have created a substance that either takes thousands of years to biodegrade or it aggressively contaminates the environment that we rely on to survive. On Type One Planet, we will be doing a series of conversations about plastic, how to recycle it, how to reuse it, and how to get microplastics and polymers out of drinking water and out of our bodies. There are many who believe that this endeavor is directly tied to the short-term survival of our species, as well as the long-term design of a civilization that has learned to sustainably use this astonishing material in our day to day lives. Today, we spoke with Frank Leibfarth, one such scientist who has set out to understand certain forms of plastic polymers that have been found in our bodies, causing elevated cholesterol, thyroid disease, lower immunity, cancer, and other disarray in our endocrine system. These polymers enter our bodies through our drinking water and as Frank has dedicated his life and his team to finding a way to removing these materials from our most precious resource. Because of his work, Frank was recognized by Popular Science as one of their Brilliant Ten, a list of scientists and engineers from across the nation who have the potential to transform the world with their innovative approaches to key issues. We sat down to find out why. My name is Robert Roach, and this is the Type 1 Planet Podcast. I'm joined on this episode by our co-founder and the love of my life, Dr. Alexandra McCall Garfinkel. Watch or listen to this episode on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and visit us at type1planet.net.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Type 1 Planet Podcast, where we're dedicated to building the foundation for a sustainable, globally stable civilization that can thrive for the next 10,000 years. I'm Robert Roach, and I'm joined by our co-host and co-founder, Dr. Alexandra McCall-Garfinkel, and our guest, Dr. Frank Leibfarth. Frank, your work spans molecular design, polymer synthesis, material science, and biotechnology. Let's start with polymers. Uh, It's something that comes up a lot in your work and on your website. What are they? And why were you drawn to this jo- this genre of fundamental chemistry during your experiences at IBM and then at Columbia University?
2: Absolutely, it's a it's a pleasure to be here. Um, this is a perfect first question for me because I you know I love polymers. Uh, so polymers, right? Poly. Uh, break down the word for you. Poly means many, and mer means unit. So essentially, a polymer is you know uh, many different units uh, of a repeating sequence connected together. So the polymers that keep us all alive are things like, right, proteins, right, they're polypeptides, uh, polymers of peptides. Uh, Polynucleic acids, or our DNA and RNA, are polymers of nucleic acids, and polysaccharides, are polymers of sugars, right? So these uh, literally kind of make up our whole body, Uh, but the polymers I think that I think about a lot in my research and that, right, uh, humans kind of interact with on a daily basis are plastics, right so the one of the, some of the largest consumer products in the world are polymers. these polymers are, are plastics they're very lightweight they can be useful at times, uh, but they can also, uh, as with any consumer product, right when overused, uh, have uh, harmful effects on things like uh, the environment and, and human health
1: okay, so from your early impressions when you you know first started becoming inspired by uh, polymers, you know what did you see in them what, what was the potential applications you know were Everything around us, is, you know, our bodies and these plastics are made up of them. But what were you seeing when you were looking at this as a potential technology?
2: Yeah, I, I think I started from a more naive place, right? I, I grew up in a small town. Neither of my parents went to college. Uh, my dad did a lot of, he was kind of, you know, he did a lot of side jobs doing handiwork. And, and so I would help him refinish basements or, or build, you know, uh, sheds or houses. So I loved working with my hands. And when I went to college and I started doing research in, in different labs, I found that synthetic chemistry, or the act of making molecules, has a lot of kind of blue-collar elements to it, right? You're kind of constantly working with your hands, you're, you're, you're trying to make things. All the things you're making are much smaller than you can see, right? So we have to use uh, special spectroscopic techniques. So I really love that aspect of it, and, and I went to Columbia University and had the opportunity uh, to go from a city of 10,000, which is Vermillion, South Dakota, where, where I was in college, uh, to a city of 10 million, uh, New York City, and I studied organic chemistry or, or chemical synthesis at Columbia. And I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, and I got to work with my hands. But I was still, right, making things that I couldn't really see. There were kind of oils at the bottom of, of little of flasks. So the next summer, I got the chance to go work at IBM. And what I really loved about that is I still got to make things. But now I actually got to make polymers, right, which were plastics, which I could hold in my hand and, you know, Pull on and push on, and, and see how the different synthetic techniques I was using, or how I changed how I made the molecules, actually changed like the properties of right this thing, right that I could hold in my hand and and, and actually um, manipulate. Uh, so that that kind of was the spark that made me realize, like, oh, right, I can do kind of this blue-collar type, right, like working with my hands, making things, uh, but I can actually. Uh, do it for the purpose, right, of of knowing how molecular level structure changes the bulk properties of a material. And that was just kind of fundamentally fascinating to me.
3: Absolutely. I, I totally relate to that. I think working with my hands in science is one of my favorite parts of getting to do it every day. <laughs> um So speaking of these plastics, um, in a Nature Perspective piece that I read before um, we met up today, you and other authors described the lagging end-of-life management for uh, polymer plastics as a Faustian bargain, which was a term I had to look up, but um, it uh, spoke volumes, that phrase. Um, Can you expand on what? a Faustian bargain is in this context, what it means for the planet, and why developing uh, technologies to do end-of-life management for plastics is so important.
2: Excellent, I'm glad, you know, we had many co-authors on that paper, but I was the one who inserted Faustian bargain, so I'm really glad you picked that phrase <laughs> out. Uh, so the, I, the, bar, the Faustian bargain of plastics is, these things, right, have enabled modern life, right? In many ways, they've enabled us to populate the world with seven plus billion people, right? Uh, They are incredibly lightweight, uh, right? We can now ship, I mean, take something as simple as milk, right? Transporting milk in glass jars costs a tremendous amount in fuel, right? So just the ability to reduce that weight for transportation, right, lowers greenhouse gases tremendously because we're not burning as much fuel to do that. Now, the Faustian bargain is now these plastics were are so convenient and they're so easy, right? And we can make so many much of them. We make enough plastic pellets to fill a modern football stadium to the top every day that we kind of, right, as with many things, didn't think about the societal and, and environmental consequences in this rush to right, develop these materials and, and start using them for all their benefits, right? I think humans are, are inherently bad at long-term cost-benefit analyses. Uh, so right now we have uh and I think finally, right kind of modern society uh and and i would say media is calling attention to the fact that we have right plastic waste accumulating in in lots of places where we don't want it right uh there's been a lot of attention played to the amount of plastic in in the ocean right uh certainly it's about uh ten percent of landfill waste at least in the u s right uh i think even more than that uh is plastics uh and right, these things do break down over time, and and we're still kind of trying to understand the the health and environmental implications of microplastics, right? So in, the Faustian bargain is well-enabling modern life and a lot of fantastic things, both with consumer goods and, and medical technology, et cetera, right? We're also having these adverse consequences, right, that we're kind of ignoring right now, I would say, and not really attempting to understand that at, at the level uh necessary to to deal with them right the, the consequences of a lot of these actions
1: excuse me frank this seems to this seems to go perfectly into your work at the at, at north carolina chapel hill in the department of chemistry where you are working with water purification what is going on in water what kind of problem are you trying to solve there that's related to what you're just talking about
2: yeah so uh this has been a really Exciting project over the last few years and has moved really fast. So, right, using our expertise in polymer chemistry, uh, so right, we know how to make and design polymers at a molecular level. Uh, And actually, uh, a large study was released in 2017 in North Carolina showing that this class of chemicals known as PFAS, that stands for per- and polyfluorinated alkyl substances, right, had. Extremely high levels, about seven to eight times the the EPA health advisory limit at the time in the Cape Fear River which feeds our third largest city in the in the state so this obviously caused great concern uh, among citizens uh, among right uh, people working in the water space uh, and really among politicians in North Carolina right who wanted to provide clean water to their constituents uh, so this is really has been a bipartisan effort from the start uh, and initially the uh, state sent representatives actually to all the universities in the state uh, and, and to faculty meetings, and and saying like, you know, we all know you are kind of the intellectual powerhouse of the state. Can you help us with this problem? Because current technology, right, uh, isn't going to allow us to to test and, and solve this problem in the in the at the pace we need to. Uh, so I, I kind of had somewhat of a naive idea at the time um, about how we could develop actually a resin to take some of these molecules out of water more selectively uh, than current technology on the market. Uh, and the state funded kind of a small project in my group essentially to see if this would work. Uh, and remarkably, I mean, from the first experiment, it worked even better than we thought. Uh, and we've progressed and right, made iterations on this technology. And then, and then two years later, the state came to us and said, all right, this, you, know, you have a technology that seems to work really well on lab scale. Um, right, you you have patented it through UNC, so the state owns a patent. What would it take to actually scale this material up and actually test it out at the water treatment plants where we have where we're most affected in the state? Uh, so in last year's budget, uh, there was a bipartisan resolution introduced and, and went through the whole budget process uh, and gave our team you know enough resources to scale up this material. So we're going from a few grams in lab to we'll probably end up making like a hundred kilograms. Of this uh, new technology uh, and we're and we're going to pilot it at three water treatment plants uh, in the state so one drinking water treatment plant a wastewater treatment plant and an aquifer, and do lots of other lab tests uh, here at UNC on other diverse waters to see if this could be a viable solution right because as you all know many things work in the lab but but the real test is right in the real world, especially with water which you know the different places you go, the different rivers or or, gra- or uh, uh, wells you pull from, right? The, the water matrices are are very different. So, testing this in in the real world is really important.
3: Um, Frank, that's incredible. Congratulations on that scaling. Um, that's that's really exciting. Um, let's step back a little bit again, and can we talk a little bit more about what PFOAs and PFOSs are? Um, bridging that kind of polymer conversation. Uh, with, you know, what these are at a molecular level all the way up to how they're actually involved in human health as we know it, whether that's thyroid disease, you know, immunity, cancer, et cetera.
2: Absolutely. Um, So PFAS stand for per- and polyfluorinated alkyl substances, especially, essentially, these are molecules that have, you know, I think the current, I would say the the exact definition is still being uh, uh, debated. Uh, but has you know, fluorinated or fluorine uh, connected to carbon atoms, right? And usually that's uh, one or more carbon atoms are what we say fully fluorinated, right? So so you kind of can't, uh, they're either carbon carbon bonds or carbon fluorine bonds. Uh, so these molecules are completely man-made. Um, there are very few biological uh, pathways to introduce fluorine to molecules. Uh, you know, Usually they're found kind of in exotic locations near deep sea vents. Um, but we've, we've been making them at pretty tremendous scale, and, and they were initially used as one of the additives in the pr- production of Teflon, right? And, and uh, we know Teflon, obviously, is the things that coat our pans that make them nonstick. Uh, and in that process of making Teflon, Uh, the wastewater contains pretty high levels of these fluorinated surfactants. Um, And it was found actually in a uh, study by DuPont plant workers, because DuPont was one of the uh, first companies that was using these on a large scale, uh, that these chemicals actually caused pretty serious human health effects. So unfortunately, there are toxicological results of these compounds in humans right? And it's clear that they are carcinogens for certain types of cancer. Uh, They definitely disrupt the endocrine system. Uh, And more recent results out of the lab, so not on humans, luckily, uh, have been shown they uh, are especially concerning for, right, fetuses, so women who who are pregnant uh, and young children, uh, and even adults at at high enough levels, right? Uh, They, again, are carcinogens and, and can disrupt endocrine systems. And the, I think, what makes them dangerous is not only, right, that, that they, they have these toxicological effects, uh, but that they're dangerous at really low levels. So we're talking part per trillion levels, right? These are things you can't, you can't see, you can't taste. You need incredibly expensive instrumentation even to measure, right? And also, they're what's called forever chemicals. So they, their degradation in the environment is thousands to tens of thousands of years, right? So that combination of toxicity and longevity uh, makes them a real concern. And current water treatment solutions are pretty ineffective at removing them, especially the short-chain PFAS. So when we went to tackle this challenge, that's a specific challenge we focused on, is how can we remove what are known as short-chain PFAS from water more efficiently than the current technology on the market?
1: Uh, Just a quick follow-up question. How prevalent are these chemicals in the United States, for example? You did mention the the region specific to, to your work, but are there forms of these chemicals all over the United States, all over the world? Like, what are we looking at here?
2: Yeah, we'll start with the United States. Um, you know, they are effectively everywhere uh, at some level. Um, over a decade ago, uh, there was a study, a pretty large study, uh, and it found that 98% of U.S. citizens had detectable amounts of PFAS in their blood. Um, Now, you know, having, I don't want to kind of uh, scare everybody, right? Detectable amounts in your blood does not mean toxic levels. Uh, But certainly, uh, I would say around the country, um, if you test, you typically find PFAS in water at some level. uh, And near... Uh, things like airport bases, uh, where fluorinated firefighting foams have been used t- traditionally, certainly near industrial areas where you know uh, either polymer producers or Teflon producers uh, were emitting wastewater. Uh, that's what happened in North Carolina. So a DuPont plant, which then uh, you know now spun off a company called Chemours, right? Their plant uh, was producing Teflon in North Carolina and and dumping their wastewater into the Cape Fear River. Uh, Now, state regulators allowed them to do that, uh, but it was found by a class action lawsuit that was won uh, that DuPont wasn't, uh, for a long time, forthcoming about how dangerous these molecules actually were, right? Uh, And and because of that, Keymore is still open to a lot of litigation, and and that's going through the court system. Um, So I would say, you know, there are known kind of uh, acute uh, contamination sites around the U.S., Many places in the U.S. haven't even tested yet, right? So it's kind of uh, unknown their contamination levels. Uh, and it's it's a diverse problem because it's not one chemical. It's a class of chemicals, right? And and some are more dangerous than others. Uh, there's still a lot we have to learn about them. Uh, but certainly, right, the, the need for this is pretty great. And if you look internationally, right, I, I think you see in many times the same story, right? So this is definitely a problem and a known problem in places like Canada, Australia, and many European countries. Uh, And if you look kind of broader than that around the world, right, many people haven't been testing for these uh, types of molecules. So uh, I think we have a lot to learn in that area, uh, but, but the problem is certainly
3: widespread. Um, So going back to your technology uh, that you've developed um, and the, Hope that it brings um, back to the very beginning. You mentioned in a in another interview that you were inspired by diapers. <laughs> Can you uh, tell us about that and, and what why diapers?
2: Yeah, well, it was. I mean, why diapers was definitely because uh, my wife was pregnant at the time, right? And and so diapers were on my mind for numerous reasons. Uh, but I but actually it was my colleague who after after the state representative came to our faculty meeting and said, right, we, we are looking for solutions, my colleague turned to me and had both, I mean, uh, a brilliant and naive comment, I would say. Uh, and she said, Frank, hydrogels soak up water. Could fluorogels soak up fluorine? Um, oh, my God. And I kind of took that, right, again, it was both brilliant and naive. And I, and I started to really, like think about it and then i started to think about all right what what polymer system do i know that absorbs a lot of something right what's really efficient at absorbing something and i I thought of diapers and these polyacrylic acid materials in diapers so i started researching like what molecular interactions allow them to absorb so much water and that was you know it was using kind of the lessons learned from diapers but applying it to fluorinated molecules that were kind of the first design elements we started using when we when we started making these resins. Um, So, right, that's, I say, uh, I want to be um, what is kind of known in business parlance as as a T person, right? So a T person has very deep experience in one area, but has enough knowledge of other areas, right, to make uh, contributions and innovations, right? So, So I always come back to my core of, I know synthetic chemistry and polymer chemistry really well. So if you, tell, if you ask me a question, like what absorbs a lot of something, I'll say, oh, super absorbent polymer is made from polyacrylic acid, right? But, and I don't know anything about water purification, or I didn't at the time, but I know enough, right, to, to use that experience to try to make innovations in other areas. So I, uh, I think that's, and I think for all scientists, right, that's kind of our superpower, right? We have that core expertise, uh, and hopefully you're put into an environment, and I think academia is good at that where you can start to talk to people in other disciplines and figure out what problems they have and see where you can contribute.
1: Well, Frank, that's basically the basis of this entire project. <laughs> so we're glad that you're here. Um, let's, all right, so I'm gonna put myself out there. This resin that you've created, there's something about its molecular structure in that it uh, it is attracted to, or it attracts these fluorine molecules and they, uh, they lock into the resin and they kind of complete the, I want to say magnetic, but that's not the right word. They kind of complete that that charge and and they're attached to the resin. And then you're able to wash the fluorine off of the resin and use it again. Is that kind of how it works? Can you go into a little more detail on that?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so the easiest way to think about this is kind of you're you're saying attraction. Um, you know, a chemist would say non-covalent interactions. So strong interactions that don't create chemical bonds. And the one I think we all know about is just electrostatics. Right? Mm-hmm. Positive charges like to attract negative charges. Uh, and it's that simple chemical interaction uh, that is the basis for one of the largest technologies for water purification. Those are known as ion exchange resins. So there's a lot of negatively charged organic contaminants. And uh, Ion exchange resins, one one flavor of them has a lot of positive charges. So when you flow water over them, right, the negative charge contaminants stick to those positive charges. Well, uh, so most PFAS, I would say above 90% of them are negatively charged. So we wanted to use that electrostatic interaction, um, but also add another non-covalent interaction or, or another attractive interaction to hopefully get synergy, right? Where these two attractive interactions not only would maybe be additive, but hopefully would be right would would complement each other, uh, so that you would get you know more than the two combined. Uh, so the other interaction we chose to use was is what's known as fluorophilicity. So fluorinated molecules are really unique. You know, if you put oil and water in a beaker, they will separate into two layers. If you put fluorinated oil into that same beaker, it will make a third layer. So it doesn't like oil, it doesn't like water. So we call that they're fluorophilic, they like each other. Uh, So the resin we made uh, is we've, and we've been working to make a very chemically stable resin, right? That includes fluorine in it. So you have that fluorine-fluorine interaction that's attractive. And then you kind of lock that molecule in there through the electrostatic interaction, right? And we have found that those two interactions working synergistically uh, is considerably better than either one. Uh, working individually in a resin.
1: And so does the water, so you're, are you pushing the water past this resin or are you pushing it? How does that kind of interact, you know, physically uh, in the process?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that's where collaboration is key because we know how to make polymers, but I have no idea how to design a water purification system, right? Uh, so it has been fortunate to be at UNC where we have a great department of environmental sciences and, and engineering. Uh, and my collaborator Orlando Cornell is an expert in physical and chemical processes in water separation. So once we had this material, right, and we did some kind of proof of concept step tests. We went to his lab, and he right, was able to dev- design what we call packed bed column geometries. Uh, so it's very similar to like a Brita filter, right? You essentially make a column and you pack it with resin, and you flow water up, over it, uh, and there. Are Right, there's a whole right there. There's really complex engineering that goes up goes into this and goes into right designing your small scale columns, so it translates to flow rate and and other complicated words and large scale columns. Again, I don't understand much of that, uh, but the beauty is I don't right have to. Uh, I'm I'm learning. Um, but he he's been able to design those column tests. So now we have a system where we pack a column with our resin, we flow water over it at you know, different flow rates, and those flow rates right matter in terms of uh, the contact time the, the water has with the resin and the mass transport rate and all, and all that. Um, and we've been testing that now for the last two years. And, and that's really where we saw the critical data that demonstrated that this really does work considerably better than the best resin on the market uh, that you can buy to take PFAS out of water.
3: Wow, that's, that's so fantastic. And like Robert said, I mean, you're talking about really what one of the fundamental um, ideas of this program is uh, highlighting how collaboration across disciplines can lead us to new solutions for problems that we're facing now and um, along our future trajectory as a society Um, and speaking of kind of stepwise movement especially to the next stage of expansion of this technology into society say on a home by home basis city wide, et cetera. Um, You talked a little bit about the steps that the government, along with your university, has taken together to even introduce this idea, which is incredible to me. I I feel like I hear about that very rarely. Um, So it's really hope inspiring to to hear about that process. Um, What are the steps that you have taken and what steps do you see Occurring next to actually get this system to the real world, you know, to the household or or a city water management plan?
2: Yeah, excellent, excellent question. Uh, I agree that this North Carolina's commitment to this uh, has been really inspiring. Uh, again, this has been completely bipartisan, right? We have both a Democrat and Republican who introduced this bill. Uh, it's been really nice to see the collaboration on the state level, right? That providing clean water to uh, citizens uh, can initiate. Um, and really, this is driven by citizens, right? This is driven by a number of citizen advocacy, advocacy groups in Wilmington, North Carolina, specifically, who are really pushing for this. So again, it's, it's really inspiring uh, being able to work with them also. Uh, next steps for the technology. Uh, so this state funding allows us to uh, scale the technology and see if it really works in a water treatment plant. Uh, I think if we look to go beyond that, right, and, and look at actually, okay, what does it take to kind of solve the market challenges to get people to purchase this and, and right, kind of move it into the, the capitalist regime uh, of expansion? Because that's kind of at the, that we at, when we finish this project, we will be at the stage where this kind of does need to fit into the societal structure we all live in, which which is uh, capitalist, right? Um, and we've started, kind of, uh, I would say, dipping our toe into understanding what that will take. So uh, we've done a National Science Foundation I-Corps program uh, that really teaches right technical people like myself how to do market research, how to understand right uh, if you were to start a business with a with a technology, right? How is it? How are you able to give yourself the best chance for success? Uh, we've been. Uh, looking at applying to, you know, grants such as small business innovation research grants uh, in order to maybe stand up a company. Uh, but the key for me is we need somebody with business expertise to lead this. You know, I am a scientist. Uh, maybe I am I might have some talent for business, but that is not how I've been trained for the last, you know, uh, uh, 15 years. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at now. Uh, but we do see, right, this this will need, if it's going to continue to develop, it will need to be, need to be done in the private sector. Uh, And a lot of that also is negotiating with the university, right? It's the university who owns the intellectual property, right? This is valuable because there is intellectual uh, property behind it. So there there will be a negotiation with the university, um, finding people to lead that end of it. uh, And then likely that person, right, will, uh, will have to go raise money because any kind of scientific technology is is inherently capital-intensive, right? It's, this is not a software startup. Um, so it really will take, you know, uh, investors stepping up and recognizing it, the importance of this problem as well. Uh, so we're looking into that. I would say the the bulk of the work uh, that we're doing uh, in the translation front for this project will definitely inform a lot of that. So right at the current time, we're focused on getting getting the scale up and getting the project uh to be as successful as it can and i think the other parts will will follow after that
1: frank question i mean leading off of what you just said you know there's uh, we've heard of science um, departments interacting with university transfer uh, tech transfer offices um, but there's also like alexandra and i interact a lot with mission-driven venture funds out here in connecticut that are very oriented towards that conversation that you were just saying and taking in a brilliant idea and a team that's not necessarily business savvy and figuring out, okay, how do we make this work in the capitalist framework? Have you ever considered those kind of uh, those uh, roads in terms of uh, getting this to the market?
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, we just, I'd say we've got, we've been lucky to get a lot of attention, right. And and a lot of people want to talk to us. Um, but you know, there, there are, there are mission driven organizations who really want to help. Um, but sometimes it's hard to decouple those from right the the organizations that will tell you they want to help, but maybe just want to you know take your technology and run with it. Um, and we do feel a real obligation to the taxpayers of the state to not allow that to happen. Uh, there's a there's actually a a pretty disheartening story. Um, a faculty member at UNC, uh, D. Simone, who is now a incredibly successful entrepreneur and and, uh, faculty member at Stanford, developed a technology to make Teflon without using PFAS. DuPont licensed that technology, right? So paid the university to license that patent and then never moved forward with it and kept making Teflon with PFAS, right? So as we, right, we're definitely interested in moving into these areas, uh, but, right, we already have, an example right in our university uh where you know somebody with a lot of capital kind of took advantage of the situation uh and and didn't get this to market so that's that's why we're kind of moving slow luckily we have the capital to do a lot of the technical uh innovation that we need to do now uh and we want to make sure that we that we do this the right way moving forward
3: absolutely that's such a scary scenario and it really um you know, you've talked about the capitalist framework in which we all have to live, and academia can sometimes give us a small respite. You know, in some ways from that structure, um, not really, right? But uh, like a, a facade of that um, respite. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's really helpful to hear. You know how careful you're being, and um, and I think that's an important lesson to learn, right? That that. If you're going to move into a sphere where profit is number one um, as motivator, uh, whereas the product you're developing is not a profit motivated, you know, uh, discovery uh, or technology, um, then then you need to be partnering with the right people. And so, again, that's hopefully something we'll be able to facilitate for some some guests in yeah. in the future as well. But. Speaking of the development of alternative technologies, right? so you just told us this relatively disheartening story about um, the development of what sounds like an incredible right, new technology for Teflon without um, these harmful polymers. Um, are there other forms of sustainable polymers that, that are in the works that you, you're aware of?
2: Yeah. I mean, one thing that my lab is working on and a lot of other labs around the world uh, is this challenge of plastic waste right um and i think uh, there's no bigger challenge in that area uh, than trying to kind of tackle the problems that polyolefin polymers right present in recycling streams so let me step back polyolefins uh the the specific name is polyethylene so polyethylene is things like the milk jug at your house or or uh, food packaging and polypropylene. So polypropylene is something like uh, a yogurt container or a Tupperware, or uh, even like the outside of, of most people's cars is a polypropylene composite, right? So these polymers are derived from byproducts of oil refining. So when we take crude oil, we refine it to fuel, right? Ethylene and propylene, two gases, uh, are byproducts of that, and we can't release those gases into the atmosphere. That would have bad effects. So the best way to get rid of them is to solidify them. Well, it turns out in the 1950s, when these uh, Ziegler-Natta catalysts were developed, we found out that solidifying them made these pretty lightweight, cheap plastics that, right then, then uh, companies could sell for a few cents a pound. And actually, for quite a while, right, polyethylene and polypropylene were simply seen as waste products, right, that you could maybe make a little profit off of. Until kind of, right, the revolution of plastics happened. And now companies are starting to shift more and more, right, uh, of their focus to deriving value from these polymers. Trying to put them in in more and more applications where, you know, we can argue whether we really need them or not. Uh, And this is creating a huge waste problem because polyethylene and polypropylene are particularly difficult to recycle. They're incredibly chemically stable. They're made of only carbon-carbon and carbon-hydrogen bonds. Uh, And they're really hard to sort once they get in recycling facilities, because again, they're made of carbon hydrogen and carbon carbon bonds. To most spectra- spectroscopic techniques, they, they kind of look the same. right? So they often end up in kind of mixed waste streams, even if right, you put them in the recycling bin. Only for, for these polyolefins, less than 5% actually get recycled, even if they make it to a material sorting facility. Uh, so I think you know, if we're going to make a meaningful change in how we deal with plastic waste, we have to focus on this class of polymers, which is polyolefins, because it makes up about 55% of world plastic production. So right, these kind of two polymers are more than half of what we produce. And then the dozens of other polymers that we make, right, all kind of fall in line after that.
1: Okay.
3: So, So just to make sure that we're on the same page. So what you're talking about is really figuring out how to recycle um, these polyolithins at a really high resolution to, to get a recycled material that's as close to the original kind of purified polymer as possible for reuse?
2: Yeah, so that is, if that were possible on large scale, that would be fantastic, right? And, and sometimes you can have true what we call closed loop recycling. Where actually the material you get from the recycling process can be used in the same application. Unfor- unfortunately, if we do what I'll call traditional recycling, which when I say that, I mean mechanical recycling. Essentially, you grind these polymers up, right? you melt them down uh, into uh, a molten uh, polymer form, and then you reprocess them into a shape. Typically, There's often contamination because of the way we we clean and sort these plastics. Uh, And there's also degradation of the chemical structure, which makes them, you know, not as strong, not as tough as they were before. So I would say the majority of recycling we currently do is what what I would call downcycling, right? So we take a polyethylene milk jug and turn it into a piece of outdoor furniture, right? We take a a polyester shirt or, or a plastic bottle and turn it into carpet. And this is not inherently bad, right? But those are lower value products, right? And doesn't contribute to what I would call a circular economy, uh, which is more of this closed loop system. So, one of the philosophies that we're working on, um, and it is by no means kind of the silver bullet to this problem, right? It will take thousands of innovations across multiple sectors to really make a difference. But one area we're focusing on that we, we think has some merit is what's called upcycling. So I talked about, right, closed loop recycling and then downcycling. Upcycling is where you can make a modification to the plastic, usually to the chemical structure. That actually makes it more valuable than the original material. So again, we hope that this could, one, take some amount of plastic waste, right, and, and, and keep essentially the carbon that is fixed in that plastic waste in the economy longer. It could also create an economic incentive for better collection and sorting technology. Right, because even if you're not using all of the plastic waste for this uh, upcycled product, right, if you have the potential to gain money uh, or or kind of fit this in, right, to, to the capitalist framework, you may improve a lot of other things that help recycling generally. Um, so that's kind of where we're focused on. We're focused on polyolefins. So how do we take these really chemically stable polymers and modify their structure selectively, and then how do we do that in a way that actually improves their properties? Uh, to recreate this kind of economic incentive for recycling or this upcycling,
1: I, I love this, and it's. I'm working on getting an interview right now with a guy named William McDonough, and he created a concept called the cradle to cradle design uh, system. Basically, they don't call it closed loop; they call it the virtuous loop because uh, they're really <laughs> good at marketing this. But it's it's very much the same idea, and they're. I know that they're constantly working on how exactly what you're talking about how do we take materials not only reuse them but upcycle them turn them into something else entirely without uh, large amounts of waste products and um it's, it's just a really exciting it's an exciting space to go into
2: and the hope is right you can not only upcycle something but actually upcycle it into a closed loop economy right so there's kind of multiple steps uh of this innovation uh that right we and others want to make uh but but currently, polyolefins right don't undergo closed loop recycling because they're almost always down cycle. so if we could mm-hmm. combine the upcycling with putting them into kind of a, a circular uh plastics economy framework right that would that would be the ideal now there's a lot of complications and and for each polymer, it's different uh, but that's why I think right we need kind of this international effort to go after this and and the u n has been active uh in this area right recently passed a resolution. Uh, to try to uh, really limit single use plastics uh, in the future, now typically u n resolutions don't have a whole lot of teeth, but I think the good thing about it is it sets a really clear example for right many other countries to start regulating this you know in a similar way to maybe the eu does, which I think would would really help uh, the way we right make consume uh, and reuse these plastics,
3: okay, Frank, so we as young parents ourselves have to go pick up our son from daycare pretty soon, Um, we're gonna do one final question here. Um, So earlier we asked about when you came into the field of polymer science, you know, what you saw as the place for polymer technology, where it was going in the future. Um, And I'd love for you to reflect a little bit now. Um, Sorry, hold on. I'd love uh, for you to reflect a little bit on how your perspective has changed being in the field, you know, as you said, 15 years um, on what you think the role of polymer science in our civilization is now and moving forward.
2: There are so many answers to this question. I think at the most fundamental level, the role of polymer science is to help us understand really complex, what I'll call macromolecular interactions. And that, I say that because that spans everything from biopolymers, right? Like how DNA folds, coils up, right? Stores genetic information, is translated, et cetera, all the way to plastics, right? Right? How do the interactions between polymers allow us to, or could allow us to recycle better, right, reuse better, et etc? Uh, so I still think, right, and that's been the case kind of since the dawn of polymer science, right, These properties are incredibly complex, and one of the big challenges is they're often governed by kinetics, not thermodynamics. And most of our scientific theory is really good at understanding thermodynamics, and, and kinetics are kind of messy and hard. Uh, and that's kind of why I like polymers, they're messy and hard, and uh, and you, you kind of have to, you know, take a non-intuitive approach to understand them. Um, if you want to go specifically in my field of synthetic polymer science, right, it is very clear that understanding how we use plastics for all the wonderful things that they bring us, but do that in a responsible way, both to the environment and society, uh, so that we are mitigating as much as possible the harmful effects uh, that they have is our biggest challenge, right? And that is, I, I think, most of the polymer field is shifting to be to work on that challenge, and I think that's really important. Uh, and that that takes not only people being interested in it, but it, it takes policymakers right prioritizing that right with uh, with funding calls. Uh, shifting the direction of research to to really focus on these areas both and balance both the practical short-term right impact that we can have but also making sure they continue to fund the kind of blue sky long-term research that could eventually make a step change in how we deal with this so that's I, I mean I think you know often if fields are kind of in a crisis it's the best time to be a scientist in them right and I and I would call the plastic waste problem at this point a crisis, uh, but it's really motivating to have the skills to actually contribute to that, right, in a small way and be able to train people uh, with skills, right, to be able to contribute to these really big problems in a real way. So, uh, yeah, for me, there's kind of, uh, this is the most exciting time in my career uh, and an exciting time to to try to be thinking about
1: these issues. We are so glad that you're thinking about it and doing the work that you're doing. This. We need to keep this out of our bodies we need to figure out how we can use plastic in a way that works uh because it's super useful it's super cheap everyone everyone uses it every day so i think we can do this better um frank thank you so much for your time today i hope we can connect again in the future maybe have you on you know to talk more about this if we've got someone who wants to throw some ideas past you but uh it's it's been absolutely wonderful having you on type one planet thank you for coming on yeah wonderful thank you robert and Sandra.